This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It is bold to say the very least. Yesterday, Quebec Premier François Legault announced a harsh new penalty for the unvaccinated. They will face a stiff additional health tax imposed by the province. No number was given, but Legault promises it will be significant, quote, not 50 or 100 bucks. His rationale is that the unvaxxed 10% of the Quebec population make up 50% of the ICU admissions. Now, the critics say it's probably illegal, maybe even unconstitutional, and it may violate the Canada Health Act. But at least one new poll shows a majority of Canadians in favor. And anecdotally, I have to say, I think it does reflect the current public mood. What do you think? The numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And meantime, CTV has tweeted that thousands of Quebecers have signed up for their shots since the announcement was made just yesterday. I'd like to see some confirmation of that. But right now, let's go to Dr. Carrie Bowman, a bioethicist at the University of Toronto, and Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious diseases and infection control physician at the University Health Network. Doctors, thank you for being with us. Happy to do so, Libby. So let us begin with you, Carrie. You're the ethicist. Uh, were you surprised by this? And what do you think? I was surprised by it. You know, it, 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 and I, 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 I don't support it. I see lots of problems with it. Um, and, you know, this is a long way from an enticement. This is really a punishment and calling it a contribution. I forget what word they used in French, but it was similar. Um, it's not a contribution. I mean, really, you know, uh, it's really not. There's an element of punishment to it. I'd also say, Libby, I'll be brief because I'm sure you want to roll to the other guests, but I also wonder how effective it is, and I'd like to hear what Alon has to say, because um, so unvaccinated by definition means zero vax, and we're told that with Omicron that, that three is really the number you want to get to, and the, the science is still emerging on that. Um, that's six to nine months away before any of these people would actually reach that, and this wave is crashing upon us right now. I wonder how effective it will be. Um, okay, well, let, let's uh, let's go to Dr. Vaisman. And uh, I have to say that when I saw that tweet saying that thousands have signed up, I was surprised because uh, I've said before, my opinion is that if you aren't unvaccinated now, you're not going to be unvaccinated if none of the inducements and punishments or uh, restrictions have, have made a difference, then I don't think anything will. Dr. Vaisman. Yeah, that, I think those are some really, really good points that Dr. Bowen made about, uh, you know, what are we defining as fully vaccinated? And really, as he said, is this really going to get people to be more vaccinated? Does it violate the Health Act, all those things? The other thing to keep in mind is that, unfortunately, with Omicron, the more and more we learn about it, the more we understand that vaccination, it, it remains highly effective against hospitalization, but less effective against any kind of transmission. So picking it up somewhere between 30, 40 percent, even with three doses, while it's true that you prevent people from being hospitalized, there, you know, you're just going to see an overwhelming number of people who are still be able to transmit. So this enticement or this punishment to get people to have to pay for their own care, to pay for this, it becomes less and less clear what, you know, how effective this kind of thing is going to be, whether it even makes sense. Yeah, but if it's, if they're talking about ICU, uh, first of all, obviously the cost of taking care of a patient in the ICU is much higher than anywhere else. And you've just said that people who are vaccinated, they're going to get it, but vast majority will not end up in the hospital. So it's, that's true that, that it does prevent hospitalization and death. But I think when you get to uh, an intervention that primarily benefits you, the person who's receiving that care, then we're kind of crossing over into other other things that people do, other behaviors that people do that do not affect the health of other people, but just theirs. So 
So, I mean, there's many, many things, many behaviors people do that are either is or isn't within their control that uh, that forces them into the ICU, forces them into hospitalizations, forces them into these medical conditions that everyone is paying for. And we do not consider it ethical to charge them for those things. So that that's what I mean by, you know, when thinking about how effective the vaccine is and what it actually is doing now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the arguments, uh, Dr. Bowman, that it's a slippery slope. Uh, you know, are smokers next on the list? Well, exactly. And boy, I've spent a lot of my working life and I continue to, you know, in the education of these things. And boy, Canada's come a long way in terms of not making judgments about our patients, dealing with what is in front of us as opposed to how they got there and what they're worth as a person. And, you know, do they drink too much? Do they eat too much? You know, and, and this really moves against all of that. And, uh, I I also think, you know, it doesn't surprise me, you know, if we're going to say a lot of Quebecers and Canadians are supportive of it, but our politicians have been quite divisive on this. I mean, I think if you ask people to go out with pitchforks and torches and chase down the unvaccinated, they'd practically be supportive of that. We really (laughs) demonize them to the point of, and it's a huge problem. I think it's wrong. I think there's a moral obligation to be vaccinated. But you know, we don't really understand what's going on within that 10% cohort. Some of them are have radical and extreme views. Some of them, I think it's muted cultural differences. I, we don't really understand it. I know, but, you know, there, there are all kinds of other behaviors. This is what some people point out that are similar that, that we, uh, mandate. So for instance, uh, you gotta wear a seatbelt in the car or you'll get a big fine and uh, it would only hurt you if you're don't you're not strapped in but it would also be uh, a much worse injury a bigger cost to the health system if you're caught without a seat belt it's a big fine and points and you know there are there are other issues like that uh, what do you say to that dr vaseman i guess i guess there's some uh, something similar about wearing seat belts it's just that the nature of this kind of thing is, is not the same in terms of the context as Dr. Bowen mentioned. For some of those individuals to not get uh, vaccinated, you know, trust in the healthcare system, traditional issues with uh, interactions with the medical establishment, whereas with seatbelt, there isn't really so much any kind of context there to be concerned about, about any kind of distrust about seatbelt wearing. So the, the, the context to why people aren't vaccinated is very different in those circumstances. And then also the the way in which, a, you know, wearing a seatbelt affects the behaviors of others or the people in your car. I mean, there's also differences there. Well, uh, that's right. It it uh, It's less likely to hurt other people than, than being unvaccinated. Am I wrong? Well, oh, you mean as an individual? I mean, yes. Yeah. I mean, the primary person who benefits from, from wearing the car seatbelt certainly is the person uh, who's wearing it. Absolutely. But I mean, the, the other... The other point I was trying to make is about how why people are don't wear seatbelts versus why people don't get vaccinated is two different, two very different issues. Yeah, and, right, and but- you know, Libby, I would say having something injected into your body that you truly believe is dangerous and harmful to you, even if we can say they're a hundred percent wrong, that's very different than a seatbelt. Okay, that's very different than a seatbelt. I'm going to take a couple of calls. Let's go to Daryl in Toronto. Hi, Daryl. Hello, everyone. Uh, I just want to make a few quick points here. Number one, we already triage people. If someone is a, an avowed smoker and they're not going to quit and they need a lung transplant, but there's someone else who uh, caught some infection and uh, needs it for that reason, which person are they going to give it to? The same with drinkers or, you know, kidneys and livers. They and give it to the person who is most likely to benefit from it. Uh, yeah. That's, that's right. That's right. So, uh, yeah, I don't think I don't think that uh, necessarily is uh, equivalent. Uh, Daryl, uh, yes oh, no, or no? Good idea, bad gonna, idea. If someone's going to keep drinking, <laughs> why would you know? Well, exactly. You deliver somebody else. Uh, my second. So you know, why not do the same with uh, the the ICU beds? You know, give one to someone who is vaxxed rather than well. That's that's even crazy. more. That's even, no, thanks for your call, Daryl. That's even more radical than uh, what Quebec is saying. They didn't say deny health care. I've heard that from quite a few people too, uh, Dr. Bowman, that they say, uh, don't, don't give the, the care or 
charge mm-hmm. for the care for people who are unvaccinated. No, and that would that would be an ethical horror, if you ask me. And, you know, I, I'm going to say this. It's kind of on the same continuum. And, you know, if, if, if the pandemic deepens, which it could, uh, you know, I hope it doesn't. But, you know, are, are we then going to say, look, we're going to have to charge them directly? This would absolutely change the absolute fabric of our society in terms of who we are if we go down that road. Dr. Vaisman? Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's very important, is that part of the element here is that the vaccine hesitant. And I know you said earlier, you know, some of these people are just simply never going to get vaccinated. But there still is a proportion that could still be convinced. And if there is this kind of adversarial relationship between government and the people, if it's, if it's displayed as though the government is trying to control people or deny them care or whatsoever, then you're going to potentially, you know, hasten the distress or deepen the distress between the people who are uh, not vaccinated at this point. So there, there is other downstream consequences to denying them care, of course. And, it, you know, it doesn't um, I don't think that's actually a very ethical thing to do. Uh, yeah, no, I'm saying that's even more radical than than what uh, Francois, Francois Legault is is proposing. Uh, but again, I mean, uh, I I want to see more evidence that that thousands of people have signed up. You know, what we have seen is that if anything, what makes people change their minds is making their lives uh, miserable if they don't. Yeah, and Libby, I, I would just point out. You know, majority rule is a terrible way to respect and and secure human rights. And that's the world over. Anyone that's worked in human rights would agree with that. So the fact that the majority of people want to, you know, stick it to the unvaccinated does not necessarily mean this is a good thing to do. I wasn't suggesting that it means it's a good thing to no, do. No, no, no. I know you weren't. It, I it, know you weren't. It's a, it's a thing that... that uh, a politician might think is a good thing to do because because of what people think. No, I sure. know. And so, you know, I, I too want to see what whether this CTV data is. If you, I think you said CTV um, yeah. on Twitter. It's or something. just a tweet. Yeah, if, if, if it's solid or not. But again, you know, what some people are saying is that the majority of people think it's a good idea. Let's just do it. I mean, ugh, you have to be very careful with this stuff with human rights. Okay, let's hear from Pat in Toronto. Hi, Pat. Hi, Libby. Um, I think this is very important for most of us who are over age 60 listening to Zoomer radio, because think about it. If we're ending up in the ICU and you've got a 77-year-old cranky old man, i.e. me, versus (laughs) a 40-year-old who's got three kids, who do you think is going to get the ICU bed? And, I mean, I think that should be at the top of the list. I also can't believe that we're saying that the majority of rights aren't important. I mean, what about democracy? And so My suggestion would be put this on a referendum and see where the answers would come out. And maybe you don't charge them. Maybe you just lock them in their houses right now for, because, I mean, we've got a problem and people are dying because of other people's inaction. It's as simple as that. Well, referendum, uh, if uh, any referendum would be, you know, touch whatever I'm touching long after we're done I appreciate with that, this. But, but Pat, I thanks get for your call. When I hear that, you know, somehow the majority can't do things because somebody has concluded that the right ethical thing to do is something else. I mean, <laughs> we can all think, we can all make a decision. And the other issue is nobody ever talks about who's going to pay for all this. It's always the other guy. And and that is what's going to hit us at the end of the day. Okay, Pat, thanks for that. Um, now, uh, if you heard the prime minister reacting to this, like just minutes ago, yeah. uh, it, uh, it wasn't a very strong reaction. Uh, you know, I suspect part of that is that he just uh, doesn't uh, get too aggressive with Quebec, lets them do what they want. But I think, uh, you know, it sounds to me, given the health minister musing about mandatory vaccination, that, you know, the government isn't too exercised about this. What do you make of that, Kerry? 
I was, I, my observation, I just heard this in your intro that, I, you know, I've been teaching all morning. I didn't hear the prime minister's intro. I thought it was very, very weak and, and almost supportive of this. I was really surprised. But, you know, from a political point of view, it's smart for a, everybody is, is so against the unvaccinated. It's a real political win to side with these types of things. Not necessarily a good idea. But, you know, when politicians are quite eagerly promote the us and them approach, this is dangerous stuff when you look at human nature. And how divisive a society do we want to be? Um, and, you know, I, I let me honestly, I resp- I'm from Quebec. I respect Quebec's independence. I always have. And their independence in thought is what I mean. And their, their independence to think beyond the rest of the country. But, boy, I don't agree with this one. Okay, uh, Alon, do you have anything to say about what the Prime Minister uh, is reacting? Yeah, I was also surprised by the the lack of condemnation or kind of shock to the to the announcement. I think that, as Dr. Bowen mentioned, the us and them kind of narrative, and Trudeau has kind of spoken to that earlier, is potentially a problem in the future when we're thinking about public health and the allocation of resources. We have to think about what, what the view of the public is going to be once Omicron or once COVID the wave subsides. And we're thinking about how we're going to distribute resources in the future for other kinds of diseases. I see that none, none of that problem is ever going away. We're still going to have a, a system with limited resources. So I just hope that this kind of thinking doesn't translate into any other kind of field in medicine, not just infectious diseases. Okay, let's hear from Bill in Toronto. Hi, Bill. Yeah, I almost feel like we're going through the uh, two minutes of hate, you know, from 1984. <laughs> and really, is this at the point this government's at? The taxation to solve the problem and demonizing, setting us against each other? I think that's absolutely despicable. But you've got two doctors on there. If we got to 100% vaccination, would that totally eliminate the virus? Would we be in great shape? We'd be off to the race. No. <laughs> <laughs> You, was that a no? That's yes, a no. It was a no. Except it there would be more. What are we getting so whipped up about? Except you know what, Bill? You know what? It'd be what, better, the, but... what would be cancer patients would be able to get their surgery on time if well, uh, it, if we were it, all vaccinated? How much better is it going to make it? Is it going to make it fifty percent better, seventy five percent better? Because every statistic they've given out for the last eighteen months has been wrong um, or changing. Uh, does anybody want to answer that or, uh, we leave that? I think it's definitely true that Omicron has changed the calculation because the number, because it's spreading so readily and it's attacking so many fully vaccinated people that it is changing the calculation that, that vaccination isn't having the same effect as it did before. But when you're talking about a system that is so limited, any kind of benefit you can give it, any kind of leeway, which is to say the more people you vaccinate, then you're going to make it easier on those people, on the healthcare workers, on the system, on the resources, everything. So while it's true that you may not seem on paper that fully, you know, getting the last 10% vaccinated may not make a substantial difference, in reality, it makes a gigantic difference for all these things that are of limited supply. Okay, Bill, thanks for your call. I am now going to bring in Kara Zwiebel, Director of the Fundamental Freedoms Program at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Hi, Kara. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. So uh, were you surprised? I was. I guess I probably shouldn't be surprised anymore uh, at, at what uh, what governments are coming up with during the pandemic, but I was surprised to see that this is something that the government was going to, to pursue. Um, yeah. You know, I think it's a, a fairly drastic measure, and um, it's also just not clear to me what, what the objective is, um, given that, you know, even if, if they were to get this passed and, and done in the next, you know, day or two, it would still be uh, six months before anyone affected by it would be fully vaccinated if they if they were to go out and get vaccinated. Yeah, that, that point has been made. Uh, Kara, do you think it's uh, legal, constitutional? Um, I think it's certainly vulnerable to um, to constitutional challenge. I, I think a lot will depend on, uh, you know, we need to see the details and exactly how they're going to go about trying to, to implement this. Um, the other thing is that, you know, the, the rights that we have in the Charter are, are subject to limits. The government can limit those rights if they do so in a way that's reasonable. But the way that we assess reasonableness is by looking at the objective that the government is trying to achieve and um, and seeing if they're doing it in a way that's, 
you know, proportional. And, and I think that's something that we, we haven't really heard from the government on it is, is what exactly is the objective. Um, and I, I think sort of punishing the unvaccinated is, is probably not a pressing and, and substantial objective. Hmm. Um, Dr. Vaisman, say it's true and, and thousands of people are getting their first shot and it takes effect within two weeks. Would they have less transmissibility after one shot? Yes, they would. But with Omicron, it's far less than what it was before. But what we do know is even with one shot, your risk of ending up in an ICU is dramatically lower. And this goes back all the way to the first trial that were done, uh, you know, about 13 months ago um, with Pfizer and Moderna. And that even with one shot after two weeks, your, your risk of going to the, of being hospitalized or dying is substantially dropped. And then after you get your second shot, which will only be a few weeks later, if you really wanted to put it to get, you know, force it, you could do three weeks later, as we originally did. Your, your chance of being up in the hospital substantially drops even more after a second within a short time. But yes, the transmissibility problem is not, is not really affected to a high degree with just one shot. Hmm. Uh, Kara, so would that be the argument against this if uh, you were giving a court challenge? Um, sorry, with, with the argument that it, that it would, that it's not, a, that it wouldn't be that effective. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we need, you know, I think when governments do things that impinge on our rights, it's, it's the onus is on them to sort of demonstrate the, the necessity and the proportionality. And so we need to see what, what evidence is the government relying on here about, you know, what, what they're trying to do, what they need to do and whether it will be effective. I think, I think there's a lot of questions about that. Um, you know, I, I think for many people, I mean, we've seen people, unfortunately, who are, you know, willing to lose their jobs because they refuse an employer's vaccine mandate. Um, so, you know, whether a fine is going to be enough to actually convince people to, um, you know, to roll up their sleeves and do this, I think is a really, um, a really open question. Yeah, no, I, I was just saying what I, I have seen just one tweet saying that thousands of people signed up since then. I, I'd like to see confirmation of that. Kara, uh, what is your reaction? The prime minister just had a news conference and he basically said, well, this is interesting. We have to wait and see. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not um, surprised, I guess. You know, it was, it was the federal health minister last week at the end of last week who sort of threw out in a pretty offhand way the idea that provinces should should probably start talking about uh, mandatory vaccinations um, in, a, in a much more kind of general and broad way. And, um, you know, which which to me is a it's a big idea to throw out in, in such a casual way. Um, and so I'm, I'm not, you know, totally surprised that the uh, the government is is um, is shying away from from being critical Um you know, and, and, and in fairness, I think, you know, we do need to see the details. Well, all, all we have right now are, you know, a couple of statements that the premier made in a, in a press conference. And if we're talking about a, you know, a law that's going to affect individuals and um, it's going to be irresponsible for, you know, levying fines from them, we need to see what exactly that looks like. Uh, uh, do you think that the prime minister's reaction, uh, you know, uh, over and above the issue itself has to do with uh, how he deals with Quebec? Um, I, I think that certainly Quebec, get, you know, gets different treatment. Um, and there, there's a lot of sensitivity around um, criticizing uh, that province in particular. Um, but I also think it's become very, um, th- this whole issue has been very politicized and it's, um, you know, it's very popular, frankly, to to think of ways to uh, inconvenience or or even you know harm or punish people who are unvaccinated. There, there's not a lot of sympathy for for people, even though I do think that that some of the people who remain unvaccinated are not people who are you know misinformed conspiracy theorists. Some of them, I think, do have um, real issues accessing healthcare, real um, trust issues with the system. And um, and I don't think any of these measures are going to do uh, any good for those people. Hard hard to imagine with all of it that that's still uh, the case that people can't access it. Uh, finally, Kara, uh, uh, are you going to challenge this? Uh, what's next? Um, we have to see what the, what the government does. You know, we have to we have to get a look at this on paper. I do think that um, you know 
a lot of the restrictions that we have across the country uh, related to COVID are are things that are enacted by um, because we're we're in states of emergency and in many places they are. Um, executive orders, um, you know, decisions made by cabinet. I do hope that if the government does like to follow through with this plan, that it's the subject of a piece of legislation that will be uh, debated and discussed in the National Assembly in Quebec. I think we need to get back to um, the, the usual rules and checks and balances that, that have a role to play in a democracy, um, especially when we're talking about measures that are, um, you know, so unprecedented. Okay. Um, let's uh, get some uh, final thoughts from uh, Dr. Kerry Bowman. Yeah, look, I'm going to say something that everyone on the panel today has heard me say a lot of times, but I'm going to say it again, Libby. A lot of this is a distraction. The greatest threat to all of us as Canadians is the global pandemic, and we continue to do next to nothing about it. It's just a matter of time until we all have a lesson in the Greek alphabet if we don't deal with that. Um, and it's being ignored. Okay. And Dr. Vaisman, uh, your, your thoughts as we close on this subject, the Quebec thing, is it, is it going to have an impact here? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I just don't know whether this is, you know, as they say, where the, is the squeeze worth the juice in this case? And yes, and if it's distracting us from other more important issues, other things that we need to be doing in the province to make sure people are looked after, then I don't think it's going to end up where you worth the, the juice. Okay. Interesting thoughts. Thank you so much, Kara Zwiebel, Dr. Kerry Bowman, and Dr. Alon Vaisman. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. And people, uh, we are definitely going to be continuing this conversation, uh, certainly on Free For All Friday, if not before. Uh, this is... Uh, quite a development. Right now, we are going to take a break. And when we come back, horses, horses walking around Liberty Village. Should we be paying millions of dollars to keep them going, apparently serving and protecting us when we return? You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Okay, I have to admit this next item has been a bee in my bonnet since our company moved here to Liberty Village. And I was delighted when I saw a big takeout in the Toronto Star about the mounted unit we see walking down our streets so often. So what's the use of them in 2022? And is it worth $5.9 million? Now, Many people argue, or some people argue, they're just for show and they come with a huge expense that we can ill afford. I can tell you the downside. They often leave large deposits of poop, which are often not cleaned up for weeks, and they back up traffic and add to gridlock. I've seen very slow-moving horses being exercised at the head of long lines of cars on a major artery like King Street West. And amid budget shortfalls and the changing demands of modern policing, some North American police services have disbanded their mounted units recently or turned to private donors to cover the cost. So is it time to put ours out to pasture? What do you think? The number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Toronto Police Staff Sergeant Brian Campbell. Sergeant Campbell, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So what is the use of the mounted unit in 2022? Uh, Our mounted unit, uh, um, historically, uh, one of our primary functions has been uh, crowd management at large public gatherings, and that could be uh, demonstrations. It could uh, include uh, sporting events, uh, such as uh, the two million people that uh, were in the downtown core for the Raptors parade, um, large annual community festivals that, uh, that happen each uh, year. Um, but we also serve uh, a multitude of functions uh, when we're out on horseback. Um, each day, our officers are going out, and when we're not uh, committed to um, crowd management responsibilities. We're doing those high visibility patrols um, in different uh, neighborhoods throughout Toronto. Uh, to be that high visibility, uh, we 
where where we can. We support our divisional uh, units by taking some of these radio calls um, that are coming in and, and addressing them. We can do that on horseback. Uh, we are enforcing um, traffic laws uh, where appropriate. Uh, a lot of the times um, we are um, being called upon to assist divisions in searches for missing vulnerable persons. Uh, there are areas as, as urban as Toronto is, there are um, areas in and around Toronto that uh, have more of a rural setting. So uh, the horses, when searching for these individuals, are at a higher um, uh, sight line. Uh, when you're sitting on our horses, they're, you're about 10 feet in the air. And the horses can navigate some of this rough terrain uh, in any type of weather uh, let uh, me a ask lot faster you, than a human. Let me ask you, uh, you know, and I, I don't want to consider the pandemic for crowd control, but say just before the pandemic in that year, 2019, how many times did you use them for crowd control? Uh, I mean, each and every, uh, it, it ebbs and flows. Uh, I know, uh, as you mentioned, with the pandemic, it has... Um, brought out a lot of demonstration and protest in regards to uh, some of the regulations and restrictions. Uh, in years past, um, uh, we you could be seeing us out uh, supporting crowd management 30, 40, 50 times. It really just depends um, on kind of what's going out on the world and uh, um, throughout the province. And you'll see different types of demonstrations and uh, depending on crowd sizes, and the potential um, for things going bad, uh, we're called on to you know either be in the area or directly be on site supporting uh, our officers or on on the ground just to ensure uh, that you know, the public safety component. Do they really do a better job? I mean, this unit is 135 years old. There have been a lot of innovations since then, like police cars. Uh, do they really do a better job than other more modern methods? In regards to crowd management, uh, they are unrivaled. Um, it's where there's no uh, direct st- studies. Um, I mean, we see them as a resource multiplier in the fact that it's believed one officer on horseback in regards to crowd control is, is uh, worth 10 officers on foot. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe you need to send some to people who are lined up trying to get rapid tests. Uh uh, anything you'd like to leave us with on this, uh, Sergeant Campbell, um, in terms yeah. of uh, if, if, you know, people are saying we need savings and uh, this would be a good place to start or to raise the money. What, what do you say to those people? I think uh, um, just what I'd want people to know is, is what the officers are. We are doing a multitude of things uh, and a big uh, component is our community engagement. We're out. Uh, we're out in each neighborhood throughout Toronto. We have the ability to truck and trailer to uh, areas outside of downtown, and uh, it, it's uh, it's something to be seen that um, uh, the horse uh, is usually the star of the show, and uh, the ability to, for the horse to kind of break down those barriers that someone may not have been comfortable to approach a police officer, and the horse quite often is um, has that ability to bring people and engage the officers. And at that point, we can start learning. Like a puppy. Uh, well, I mean, it's uh, they're just such magnificent animals. And then people go out and it starts off uh, discussions about the horse. And then from that, it gives the officers and, and uh, members of the community to have these conversations about what's going on in their neighborhood, uh, challenges, concerns, and especially if there's been a, significant event the day before and we are out uh, um, to show that kind of presence in the community um, it, it gives that sense of calm that and you can, we can have these conversations and learn the information and and share it with our divisional partners as to what's going on who's responsible so, uh, for cleaning up after the horses uh, we work with uh, our partners uh, in the city um, throughout I mean uh, in regards to the manure, it, it our horses' diet consists basically of uh, hay, um, grains, and water. So it has the same consistency of grass clippings, and they, they very rapidly break down. Not um, really. <laughs> Not the, some of the stuff I've seen right outside our parking lot for weeks. 
uh, but who, so, you know, um, the, the complaint is that they, they leave those droppings in bike lanes on the street and they're not necessarily cleaned up. Yeah, I mean, if there's any, uh, we work through, I guess it would be 311 and roads. And if any, uh, at point, um, that there's, uh, manure in an area, I mean, we, it, depending on where it's, uh, left that, you know, the officer, um, if it's safe to, uh, to move it in an area that it's, it's not going to be in the way of someone. Um, but we just have to be careful that, you know, the officer has greater control when seated in the saddle as opposed to getting down off horseback. Okay. Thank you so much, Staff Sergeant Brian Campbell. Appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you. Okay. Now I am going to bring in John Sewell, who is a member of the Toronto Police Accountability Coalition and the former mayor of Toronto. Hi, John. How are you? Fine. Thank you. I'm fine. I'm okay. fine. Okay. I, 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 we want to talk more about the total police budget, but yep. uh, what's your take on the, on the horseback unit? Is it worth five point nine million bucks when uh, when the police board is looking for another twenty five million? Yeah. Well, the first thing I want to say is yes, I do like horses. They are terrific. They're magnificent beasts, as as the uh, the officer was saying. But at the end of the day, I think you can say that the mounted unit is a bit of a thrill. Most of the things that the mounted unit does can be easily handled by other parts of the police force, including this idea of uh, searching in rough terrain. I mean, the police now have drones. So, I mean, they can eat. That's probably a much better way of doing it, using police horses as a way of getting police uh, and, and the community to talk together. I mean, a better way of doing that is taking off the police armor, getting rid of the gun, getting rid of the taser, so you're really dealing with a real live person rather than an armed individual if you wanted good community engagement. And in terms of crowd management, I think we can easily say that can easily be dealt with by police cars and and other police officers. So at the end of the day, I think you'd say it's a bit of a frill. And when you're, if you've got almost $6 million there, There's many other useful ways to spend it. Let me give you one simple one. If we decided to give those people who are homeless $1,000 a month in order to get an apartment, you know, that's maybe $12,000 a year per person, we could actually get 600 of those homeless people into apartments for that amount of money. And I think put that way, you begin to say, well, you know, maybe there's some things we just can't continue doing because there's better ways to spend that money. And, and that's the way I would approach the whole thing about the mounted units. There's better ways to spend $6 million than on this function. Well, uh, and, uh, uh, Hamilton Speck columnist is calling it a highly Instagramma- Instagrammable uh, PR unit. <laughs> yes, not bad. That's what it is. That's what it's it is. A very, and, very expensive one. And, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, one of the reasons that the police are looking for such a big increase, 25 mil, um, for a total 1.1 bill budget is they want to beef up enforcement for Vision Zero, which is really important. Uh, well, you know, presumably they could just shift the people over for that rather well, than asking people after a pandemic for so much more money. There's no question that would be they can shift those officers, what is it, 18 officers, something in that division. You could easily push them over to do other things. I mean, but 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 here's the thing. You know, we got to start thinking about policing in other ways. At the end of the day, the way that you reduce accidents on roads is not by having more police, because we've been putting a lot of police in there and things have not been going down. Pedestrian deaths continue to be. We've got to start redesigning those roads in more serious ways so people can cross them without getting hit by traffic. Well, um, what people say is that they have started doing it. <laughs> I don't know. That they've started to redesign roads? Not very well. There's an awful oh. lot of suburban roads, so there's six lanes wide, and the distance where pedestrians can cross is maybe a quarter of a mile. And that's why people say, oh, I'm not, I can't walk that far. I'll just cross here. And boom, 
they're into a serious accident. So it's it's really a matter of redesigning those roads so that traffic's going slower and there's more opportunities for people to cross. But the point I'm I'm trying to make, uh, even if you don't agree with that, is there's a number of functions that, in fact, the police could be giving to other community organizations. We've seen that in terms of the whole question of uh, mental uh, people in mental crisis. Police are not good at responding to those. We should be getting people who are fully familiar with mental illness questions to be responding in those situations. Maybe we should be doing it the same in terms of drug overdoses, in terms of the homeless. We don't need police responses to those kinds of things. So there's a number of ways in which we can actually address questions of the police spending. Now, we didn't have that chance of doing that at the police board, which met yesterday and unanimously approved those budgets. They had actually given three business days for people to respond to this $1.1 billion budget, which which is not a reasonable thing. John, please hang on. I've got to take a break. Before we go to break, I'm going to give the numbers out. 416-360-0740. Toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And we'll be back with more from John Sewell on the whole police budget on the Mounted Unit when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We are talking to former Toronto Mayor John Sewell, who is now with the Police Accountability Coalition. We're talking about the police budget. The proposed budget this year is asking for a $25 million increase to $1.1 billion. So some people have raised some questions. Should we get rid of the nearly $6 million mounted unit? A lot of other cities have done that. Uh, that unit is cute, but it's 135 years old and there are more modern ways and the money is needed for other things. Uh, John Sewell, so in general, um, do you think that there's a general feeling, especially at city council, that the police, you know, they, they need the money they're asking for and uh, we need it for public safety? Well, I mean, you know, that's a good question. Um, my impression is that there aren't very many members of council who are willing to actually question in serious ways how police spend money. Um, they just, you know, people people on, on city councils and on police boards across the country seem to be very loath to actually be critical about police spending in the way they might be critical about how we spend money on the welfare system or on housing or on planning or in traffic or all those things. And that's a problem. I I describe all that stuff fairly substantially in my new book, um, Crisis in Canada's Policing. So it's a bit of a problem when we go to city council and say, hey, there's other ways of doing things. I don't think they take it very seriously. I mean, yesterday at the police board, There were 20 deputants who argued, 19 of them argued, that the police budget should be cut in some way, or at least there should be a delay so that people had a chance of really considering the budget rather than just with this three business days that they gave us to look at it. And in fact, there was only one member of the board, Ainsworth Morgan, who's a provincial appointee, who actually said, well, would people have any other opportunities for making presentations on the budget? And he was told, well, you know, we can go to city council and and ask them to do something about the police budget. No other member of the board, no other six members of the board, including Mayor Tory or Jim Hart, who's the the chair of the board and the city appointee, or Councillor Nunciat or Councillor none of those even referred to what the people who had made deputations had actually said. And I think that's an indication of how unwilling city council and and, and community leaders are 
to actually address policing issues. And I think that's a, a big, big problem. Uh, you know, we we all know about a big uh, right-left divide on city council, even though it's not supposed to be political. Is 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 that partly what this is about? No, because what I have seen is that even the people on the so-called left, the so-called reformers on city council, aren't willing to actually challenge questions of what the police do. I mean, to give you the one example, Toronto police were strip-searching 40% of the people that they arrested. No other police force in Ontario was strip-searching any more than 1% of the people arrested. But we couldn't get any member of city council to come to the Toronto Police Board and say, hey, we got to change that. Now, as it turns out, the police service, after the murder of George Floyd um, a year and a half ago, actually said, oh, we better change the, the, the number of people that were strip searching because the Supreme Court of Canada had made a decision 19 years ago that we should. So, well, now we'll do it. But no member of council had actually come forward. So, you know, I think there's a real fear, fear that if you're critical about the police, even in a constructive way, the police association will jump down your throat. And, you know, we've seen some examples of that here at Toronto. Um, and I, so people keep a distance and it means that it's very hard to bring change to the police force. I mean, this whole question of the mounted unit. So is anybody actually going to make this proposal when the matter comes to the city's budget uh, committee in, on June, uh, January the 24th? Uh, I fear maybe not. And, and they should. I mean, you've raised, Libby, you've raised all the issues about Maybe this is a frill, but I'm not Maybe. sure any any of our leaders is going to take it on. Yeah, um, it's discouraging, isn't it? You know. Well, it's interesting, but some of the things you've mentioned, we keep hearing say that, for instance, on on the mental health issue, uh, I think police recognize they're not necessarily the best people to deal with that. We have heard about. Um, mental health professionals being hired. I know there are issues yeah. with it on the timing of the call. So um, is is it fair to say that there's been a start on some of these things? Well, there's been a very small start in Toronto on the mental health thing where they've actually put a staff person in the 911 call so that, that if, in fact, there's a call uh, about mental health, then, in fact, it might be referred to that person who can put it to a a mental health professional. But as they've indicated, you know, so far only 42 calls have been diverted. And that's in the last three or four months. Not very many because police are getting something like 20,000 of these calls a year. Um, and you know, so, so there's a big problem there. It's moving very, very slowly. And in fact, rather than diverting more money to the community resources like the Gerstein Center, which is well, the world-renowned expert about dealing with these kinds of crises. In fact, the police have increased their own budget for responding to mental health calls. Well, they but a lot of them actually say they would rather not. I, I agree, but in fact, the the big push by the board and and apparently by police organizations is, hey, we got to have more staff, more staff. When in fact, they should be going in the opposite. The other thing is that what's interesting in Toronto, we have a mental crisis intervention team, which was established about 15 years ago, consists of a police officer and a mental health professional from a hospital. But they are not permitted to be first responders to a mental health crisis call. Instead, the armed officer goes there to make the situation, as they call it, safe. And often that's too late, you know, for the men. Interestingly enough, in Hamilton, just to use the example, in Hamilton, those kinds of teams are first responders. So they have a much better system in Hamilton than, than we do in Toronto. But Toronto won't adopt that. So, I mean, it's the old thing that we, we talk about these things. But at the end of the day, the people who are responsible for the police, the police board, don't seem to want to move on those issues. What about they just dig their head, their feet in? What about civilian hires? Do they have enough civilians working in the police? You know, on things like uh, dispatch. Well, um, th- th- that's a good question. I I can't answer that. Um, certainly, 
people are aware that when you phone 911, <laughs> you're often put on hold. <laughs> That's a problem. Uh, but part of it is that why have we got all these calls going to 911 when the last thing we need is an armed officer going to respond to a call? I mean, the police earlier this year said that in the first four months of this year, they'd received 300 calls for service, 300,000 calls for service, of which 10,000 at some risk of violence. So 97% of the calls that the police receive for service don't require an armed officer. They require something else. So, you know, there is that thing that we've got too many functions we've pushed over to the police. we got to start pushing them back out to the community. It'll be much less expensive to do so because police officers, I mean, if you're a police officer in Toronto, after five years on the job, you're paid $100,000. I mean, it's a really good paying job. Most community services, they don't get $100,000 after 10 or 15 well, years. I, I think they probably deserve making good money for putting themselves on the line like that. Well, maybe they do, but you must remember, most of the time, they don't deal with issues of violence. We tend to forget about police. In Toronto... The number of arrests that the average officer makes in Toronto are six arrests a year. That's one every two months. You know, it's not as though they're dealing with issues of violence every single day. It's simply not the case. Yeah, but how do you know when you're going to have an issue with violence and when you aren't? You usually do. The call will give you an idea of of what kind of a situation you're going to be dealing with. That's usually the case. People know what it is that's actually happening, and they can tell people, hey, you know, there's a fight going on. We're really worried about this. Good. Send out a couple of cops pretty quickly. Uh, But most of the calls aren't like that. 97% of the calls don't involve that kind of violence at all. Toronto's Toronto's not unusual. This this, This is true across large police forces throughout Canada. Uh. Just to wrap things up, uh, what's next for this budget? And do you have a number that you'd like to see it cut by or or the proposal cut by? Yeah, I think what we should be doing is saying we're going to flatline the budget. It's not going to be $1.1 billion. We're going to take the $24 million increase that they want out of it and put it to other uses. That's a simple thing. Where that will happen, it could happen at the city budget subcommittee, which meets on January the 24th, or it could meet later at the executive committee, uh, which will then consider the budget subcommittee, and that'll probably happen early in February. So so there are some opportunities for people to actually have their say, you know, trying to save the budget subcommittee or at the city executive. You know, hey, come on, let's get a bit smarter about this particular a very, very important function in our in our city society. Hmm. That doesn't sound like a radical idea, flatlining a budget. Uh, <laughs> John Sewell, we're out of time. Thank you so much for this. Oh, thank you, Libby. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay. And uh, people who've been waiting, Free For All Friday is coming up. I'd love to talk more about the horses. Uh, right now, that's all the time we have for today. Fight Back with Libby Snymer is produced by Zeev Hadi with technical production by Jordan Chakravarti and Jeremy Logan. Check out the Fight Back podcast anytime at zoomerradio.ca or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Zoomer Radio Toronto. CFZM FM and CFZM AM owned and operated. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.